All right, well, for the past five weeks, if you've been hanging out with us, you know that we've been talking about our goal at Rio for this year. We've said that our goal is to know the Word and to live the Word, meaning the written Word of God, this Bible that God and grace has given to us, and we want to do that yet again this year, but we've said that we want to do that for a very particular reason, for an expressly stated purpose. We've said that we want to know and live the written Word of God so that we might come to know and live for the living Word of God, who as we've already seen in this study of the Gospel of John that we started the year with, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then when you think about it that way, what's the real goal? The real goal this year is to know Jesus. And it's to live for Jesus, but we've also talked about the fact that we're not going to be able to accomplish that goal unless or until we first learn how to read our Bible properly. And how is that? Because we've spent a ton of time on it. It is to read it slowly. It is to read it thoughtfully. It is to read it deliberately. It is to read it reflectively. It is to read it meditatively. It is to read it interactively. It's to look it up, you know, resources and and phrases and things. It's to cross-reference verses. It's to look in commentaries. It's to stop and ask questions of it. To interact with it. It's not a story that i got to read today and I can check it off and moving on. No. It is, as we'll see in a minute, the voice of Jesus. If you have ears to listen. So we've said that we're not going to be able to accomplish our goal unless or until we first learn how to read the Bible properly. But today I want to add to that a little bit. I want to flesh this out a little bit further and say that we also will not accomplish that goal unless or until we learn how to approach the Bible properly. That is to say, until we start coming to the Bible for the right reasons and to help you understand what the right reasons are, I want to give you a couple of wrong ones, okay? And I want you to measure yourself by it. As I roll them out, ask yourself and be honest, is this me? I think it's all of us at different times. I think, first of all, a lot of us read the Bible because we know we're supposed to. Sound familiar? Like, if all else fails, I know I'm supposed to do it. That's it. So I do it out of duty. I do it out of obligation. I am a responsible citizen of the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore, I must read my Bible. Well, think about that for a minute. What does that do to your time in the Scriptures? It reduces it down to an obligation of a citizen. It's like paying your taxes, really. Something you know you're supposed to do, ostensibly receive some kind of a benefit from. But do as little of as you can. It's not why you read the Bible, or at least it's not why you should. I think two or three of us, because this is a very small group, maybe more than two or three. I think a small percentage of us fall into the habit of reading it simply because we're fascinated by it. We find it interesting. And I know that kind of blows your mind if you're not really into the Bible yet. You know, this idea that the Bible is tremendously interesting might be a little bit of a surprise to you. Don't be surprised by that. The Bible is incredibly interesting. And the treasures that you can unearth within it as you read it the way it's supposed to be read are both marvelous and fascinating. You can spend every moment of the rest of your life marveling over the fascinations of Scripture and not even begin to exhaust it. But if that's why you're reading it, then it's nothing more than a hobby. It's like gardening. You know, I'm interested in gardening, so I'm going to read this gardening book, and I'm going to check out this gardening blog, and I'm going to subscribe to three gardening magazines. And hey, Home Depot is having a seminar on manure. I'm going to bring my rubber gloves, but I'm going. Because I'm interested in gardening, and I'm interested in fishing, and I'm interested in investments, and I'm interested in the Bible, and I'm interested in... Really? Thirdly, and I think this is the broadest category, I think that many of us read the Bible 
to gain practical wisdom. We understand that the Bible is full of practical wisdom for living, and we're very interested in living wisely, and we're very interested in living wisely. Why? Because we understand that that will help us live a better life. Do you see how self-centered that is? That's a major part of the problem. When the only reason you come to the Bible and to study the Bible and to read it the way that it's supposed to be read, when the only reason that you come to do those things is so that you can gain practical wisdom for living, what is the Bible reduced to? The Bible becomes kind of like your doctor, your lawyer, your accountant, your financial advisor. You know, it's a helpful resource tool that you have available and can selectively speak to and choose from and use and incorporate into your life to help you make your life more successful as you define success. Examine yourself by that. Lastly, I think that some of us at least read the Bible primarily for inspiration or comfort. And I think that if that's your goal, you're not going to read the Bible very much because the Bible makes you uncomfortable at least as often as it makes you comfortable. And in truth, it corrects and guides and instructs and rebukes you at least as often as it inspires. So it's a quick read if that's the goal. Guys, reading the Bible is not something you do out of duty or obligation. It's not like paying your taxes. It's something you do out of desperation. Something you do out of great, great need, just like breathing, drinking water, eating food. It's something you do because in the Scriptures there is life. And apart from the Scriptures, you wither and die. Reading the Bible is not something you do as a hobby. You don't read it because, you know, you find it interesting. Again, like gardening or investments or whatever. That's not it at all. God did not give us His Word to stimulate us intellectually. Now, again, it's very stimulating intellectually, and that happens to be my weakness. I mean, in seminary, I had to take six Greek classes. Six, okay? Do you know how many I took? Seven! Who does that? I didn't even need the elective to graduate. It's very intellectually stimulating, but that's not why you should read it. The Bible is not here merely to inform us. It's here to form us. It's not here just so that we can, you know, discover new and cool insights for the sake of discovering new and cool insights. It's here so that through it, God can give us sight itself. It's very different. And neither is the Bible a resource tool. It's here to help us live our best life now. No, it isn't. Not really. We can then leave it on a shelf because, you know, we, can, we don't talk to our doctor every day or our lawyer or our accountant. It's a resource to us, like a dictionary if you need it. You know what's in it, and you can pull it down, and you can take a look in it. Is that the way it is? That's not the Bible. The Bible is not some itty-bitty thing that you can selectively incorporate into the great big story of your life and that you can use as if somehow within the great big story of your life, the itty-bitty Bible is going to find its place and find its relevance and find its purpose and find its meaning and find its significance. That is absolutely upside down. The reality is that the Bible is enormous and the story that it contains and tells and is ever yet telling as it finds action through the lives of God's people, as it finds action through the Lord Christ, who is returning again. The story that it tells encompasses the entire universe in which we live. 
and invites each one of us with our itty-bitty little stories to find our place in it, our relevance in it, our purpose, meaning, and significance in it. It's very different. And lastly, the Bible is not a self-help book. It is not, you know, some kind of a spiritual Tony Robbins. It's not a a spiritual personal trainer that you agree to spend some time with because then you're going to, you know, it's going to help you get in shape spiritually. No, the Bible is the Holy Spirit-inspired instrument in the hand of God Almighty Himself that by His Spirit He then uses to shape you and to shape me spiritually and to shape us how into whose image? Because He's the one we want to know this year. He's the one we want to live for this year. God uses His Word to shape us into the image of Christ, guys, to make us more like Jesus, to make us more, to put it differently, like the one who in chapter 10 of this very gospel that we're looking at, in an effort to explain who He is and who we are, says, okay, here's the deal. Here's who I am. I'm the good shepherd. And all who believe in me, well, you guys, you're my sheep. And let me tell you what's true of you. My sheep know my voice. Now taste and chew it upon that. Sit down at the dinner table with that. Savor that little morsel of truth like a fine meal. Sit down and slowly digest that and think about it. He doesn't say, my sheep know the content of my communication. That is to say, they know my words. My sheep know my voice. That's very different. You can tell a lot from somebody's voice. You can really get to know someone's voice. You know, I mean, just think about it. Your son or daughter calls you up on the phone. You know, your husband or wife calls you on the phone. Your best friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever. Somebody you know, I mean, you've grown to know by spending time with, by hearing their voice. When they call you, they don't just communicate a content full of words, do they? They communicate their heart through their voice. You know immediately if they're up or if they're down, if they're happy, if they're sad, if they're excited about what it is they called you to talk about, if they're completely ambivalent about it. There's all kinds of things. My sheep know my voice, therefore. They know not just my words, they know my heart. The heart of the one that we're seeking to know to become more like, to live for this year. Now, where do you find the voice of Jesus? Well, primarily in His Word. That's why you come to the Word of God. You come seeking to hear and to know the voice of your Savior that you might become more like your Savior and live in a way that evermore glorifies Him. So to that end... If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, then please turn to John chapter 2 as we pick up our study today in verse 13, right where we left off, where John, the apostle who's writing this great book, tells us this. He says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now stop for a minute, because if you're tasting, if you're chewing, if you're reflecting, if you're meditating, if you're reading this thing slowly the way that it's meant to be read, you stop here and start asking questions like, What's the Passover of the Jews? Because if you don't know, you need to look it up. It's the value of a good study Bible, of a good commentary. And when you research it, you discover that the Passover of the Jews is the annual remembrance. Can you remember that? 
The annual remembrance of the single greatest delivery story in the Old Testament, that great story, and many of you know it, where God comes to Moses and he sends Moses into Egypt to deliver his people out of slavery and oppression and death in the land of death. It's the place where the mummies come from. It's the land of the dead. He's delivering them from death through Moses. But if you're really chewing, then you stop and go, yeah, but why do they call it Passover? That's significant. Because on the day of their deliverance in accordance with the specifications of God, the families of Israel in that land of death called Egypt took unblemished, spotless, perfect lambs and killed them. And then literally, in faith, painted the doorposts of their homes and the lintels of their homes with the blood of the innocent lambs and found shelter behind the blood. And that evening, the angel of death passed over the homes that in faith were covered by the blood of the innocent lambs and visited every home that wasn't. What's the difference between life and death, guys? Because the Bible is teaching you this from the beginning. It is to be covered by faith in the blood of an innocent lamb. In fact, of the innocent lamb. You have to think in these categories. That's why it's called Passover. And in Jesus' day and in every day since that original Passover, the Jews have annually celebrated the Passover. And in this land of Palestine, the Jews would go up to Jerusalem to do it. Now, how are they going up to Jerusalem? I mean, you know, they might be coming from the north or from the south, coming from any direction. You go literally physically up to go to Jerusalem. It sits higher in elevation than all of the surrounding areas. So John says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus, like pretty much every other Jewish person in the area, went up, there it is, to Jerusalem. And as we'll see, he's with his disciples. And now notice what Jesus finds when he gets to Jerusalem, and notice what Jesus does in response to what he finds when he gets to Jerusalem. John says that in the temple, the location matters. Jesus found those who were selling oxen, those who were selling sheep, those who were selling pigeons. That's a very poor translation, in my opinion. It should be doves. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and then as if that's not enough, he found money changers sitting there as well. So what's going on here? What's happening is that the Jewish people from all over this particular part of the world are doing what they did annually every year. They're coming up because it's, it's a walk up as they sing the Psalms of Ascent to Jerusalem. And they're coming to celebrate the Passover. And as part of the celebration of the Passover, in remembrance of what happened in the original Passover, they would sacrifice unblemished animals to the Lord their God. But here's the problem. It's terrifically inconvenient to take an animal unblemished from who knows how many miles away and to travel with that animal, keeping it unblemished, no cuts, no bruises, no wounds, no scrapes, from your home to the city of Jerusalem. It's much easier to just show up in town and buy one. Get the idea? So that explains the animals, but what about the money changers? Every male Israelite, 20 years of age and older, when they annually stood before the Lord to celebrate the Passover, was required to pay the temple tax. The temple tax was a half of a shekel. 
It's a silver coin, but it had to be paid, and all the details matter, in a certain kind of coinage. It had to be paid in the coinage of the city of Tyre because that was made of the purest silver. And, however, there was a problem with the coinage of Tyre in that it bore the face of a pagan god. So now that's an issue in the temple. So here's the deal. The money changers would set up their thing. They would sell these silver coins that had been defaced by which you could then pay the temple tax. So the religious authorities in Jesus' day, no doubt receiving a major cut, established a big market by which they could charge 7-Eleven kind of prices for 7-Eleven convenience. And you would roll into town and you would purchase your animals probably at a big markup. And you would purchase your temple tax coin probably at a big markup. And Jesus doesn't really have a problem with the idea of setting up this big market. The problem is where they set it up. See, years prior to this, they would set it up across the Kidron Valley to the east of the Temple Mount, right on the Mount of Olives. Pretty convenient. But Jesus shows up this year, and it's literally in the temple courts itself. It's in the outer courts. It's in what's called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, pause. Why does that matter? Because that's the only place in the house of God that a non-Jew could come to hear about God, to worship the Lord God, to offer prayers to the Lord their God, to seek the face of God, and not just the non-Jew, the foreigner, some people like us, but, but also the blemished, the physically broken and disfigured, the blind, the lame, the eunuch. We read about the eunuch in Scripture and so forth. These guys had occupied what is sacred space with a great big market. And you got to notice that Jesus is not mildly irritated about it. He is not a little miffed. And you need to taste and chew that a little bit too. Notice what Jesus does, verse 15. And making a whip of cords. So he springs into action. He creates for himself a whip. And he drove them, how many? All out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And again, you've got to stop and imagine that. You have to enter into that. You've got to sort of see how much effort that must have taken. We're not talking about a small market with a few merchants and a couple of sheep and, you know, two or three oxen. Sam Kastenschmidt, who is um, on our study guide team, a study guide, by the way, that you ought to be getting every week off of our website. You can sign up for daily devotionals from. It just shows up. And it's not a recapitulation of my message. It's a lot, lot more than what we get to talk about on Sunday. But he sent me an email yesterday, and he said that in AD 66, so about 30 years or so after this event that we're reading about here today, there were 255,600 lambs alone sacrificed at the Passover. Just the lambs. This is not a little market. Now, I'm sure they didn't have, you know, all quarter million of the lambs in the market and all at the same time, but you get the idea? Lots of merchants, lots of animals, lots of people bargaining and bartering and arguing, as you can imagine, if you've ever been to a Middle Eastern bazaar. And Jesus Christ, Son of God, God made man, standing dead center in the midst of it, creating a whip and then running them angrily, all of them out, not just some. For John says, in making a whip of cords, he 
drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And not only that, but he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. So what does this tell you? I think it says a lot of things, not the least of which is that there is such a thing as righteous indignation in this life. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, gets furiously angry. Think about that. And his furious anger is the perfect response. What makes you angry? What doesn't make you angry but ought? I just started thinking about that because, you know, that's part of reading the Bible, guys. It's part of being reflective. That's part of not being on a mission to get through it, but on a mission to have it get through you. You've got to pause and go, wow, what makes me angry? I think poverty should make you angry. I think homelessness should make you angry. I think hungry people, not they themselves, but hunger itself, should make you angry. I think the plight of the widow and the orphan should make you angry. I think the plight of unborn children should make you angry. Injustice, angry. Oppression, angry. Preventable disease that doesn't get prevented. Angry. The list is long. Jesus gets angry and his anger, this righteous indignation that, you know, wells up within him causes him to do something. He doesn't go, I'm really furious about this. Oh, look at the time. Let's go get lunch. It's It's not it. He makes a whip. He springs into action. John says again, verse 15, In making a whip of cords, he drove them and all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who were selling pigeons. No, he told those who sold the doves. And that's important because what is the dove a symbol of in the New Testament? You have to think in these categories. It's a symbol of of the Holy Spirit. You think of the baptism of Jesus, the Son being baptized, the heavens opening, the Father speaking, and the Spirit, it's very Trinitarian, descending upon the Son as a dove. And He told those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my house the house of trade. It's as though they've made it such a place of desecration that the Son of God is sending the Spirit of God away from it. Wow. And see, if you're looking not just for the words of Jesus, but for His voice, for His heart, here again you pause and say, all right, well, what in the world made Him so angry? And you don't have to wonder. John doesn't leave us guessing. He's very clear. He says this in verse 17. He says his disciples who were taking all of this in remembered that it was written, what? Zeal for your house will consume me. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's the bleeding of sheep. There's the lowing of cattle instead of brokenness and contrition and holy adoration in God's house. What do you find? You find people arguing over the price of coins and the price of sheep and the price of doves and so forth. Instead of the smell of incense and the smell of sacrifice, you've got the smell of manure. Instead of the foreigner and the broken being able to gather in God's house and the only place that they could gather in God's house to to hear from the Lord and to worship the Lord and to pray to the Lord and to seek the Lord, they're driven out in a sense and replaced, being displaced by a market 
And Jesus sees this and makes a whip and drives them all out. So what does that tell you about Jesus? Well, it tells you, I think, at the very least, that he cares very passionately about worship. He cares very passionately, to state it differently, about what we're doing. So then how do you care about it? For Jesus, this is a really big deal. It's like it's not something he takes cavalierly. It's not something he approaches casually. It's something that he's very intense about. It says something about sacred space. That is to say, the dwelling places of God, the temples, if you will, of God. And you see many, many as you read through the Bible and you just follow the metaphor of the temple. God's people, all of us together, are living stones. We form the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. He cares very passionately about our purity. And then you take that home just to yourself. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? For you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your temple. Now, it's painful to not run past that, isn't it? But if you're really going to digest it, you've got to go, okay, so what's happening in me that Jesus would like to take a whip to? that Jesus would seek to drive out. And John says again that when Jesus has done all of this, his disciples remembered, this is verse 17, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then we read, so the Jews, meaning the Jews in charge of the temple, who also took notice of this, no doubt, said to Jesus, okay, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, look, if you're going to claim to have authority to regulate the temple, then you need to show us a sign that demonstrates or manifests that, in fact, you do have authority to regulate the temple. And as those who themselves had the authority to regulate the temple, that was their job, it was okay for them to ask that question. The problem, I think, is that they never in this story ever stopped to consider whether what Jesus had done was just and right and then to examine themselves and their own attitudes and their own conduct in light of what Jesus had done. And I think that's instructive as well as you really reflectively read. And what I mean by that is I, I think that we're all cool with Jesus. We're very happy with Jesus until he starts to infringe upon our territory. Their territory was, well, the authority that they had in this place. And it was money. What's your territory? Verse 18, the Jews in charge of the temple said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And of course, they thought he meant this big, huge temple, you know, that they're standing almost literally in the shadow of. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so thinking he's talking about that temple, the Jews then said to him, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You can hear the incredulity. You know, they're just like, what? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you now raise it up in three days? It's ridiculous. But it's not the temple that he's talking about. John says, but he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. And then John says that when therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And all of a sudden, probably for the first time, this statement made sense to them too. Nobody got it in the moment, it seems. But they got it after the resurrection. And what happened? What's the end result? And they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus 
had spoken, and that should sound familiar to you if you were with us last week. Last week, we looked at that great first miracle story where Jesus turns water into wine, and how did it end? Pretty much with that kind of a statement. The disciples saw, the disciples believed. The disciples see, the disciples believe. They see His glory, they believe. And that's consistent with the purpose of this book. From beginning to end, John is constructing this book very carefully like a work of art. And he's doing it story by story by story by story that we might see the glory of this Jesus. And in a life-altering, transformational, I am ever more looking less and less like me and ever more looking more and more like Him, believe in Jesus, who as God-made man is Himself the living dwelling place of God and thus the true temple and the true center of all true worship. You'll see these themes unfold as we go. And not only that, but He is in His own person the true place of sacrifice, is He not? How has He been presented to us already by John in this book? John the Baptist calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God, not a Lamb of God, not one of the 255,600. No, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who lays down His unblemished life, that all those who come to Him in faith and, figuratively speaking, are covered by His blood will be passed over by the judgment of God and saved. The other thing I think that's kind of cool is that the true temple, who is Jesus, doesn't exclude the foreigner. Aren't you happy for that? And He doesn't exclude the broken either. And everyone here should be happy for that too because we're all broken in a lot of ways far more than we realize. That's one of the ways, I think, that the Scripture demonstrates that it's not a self-help book. You know, it reveals to you that you're far worse than you ever imagined. It really does. But you know what it then says? It then says that through faith in Jesus Christ, you're far better than you ever imagined too. As the true temple of God, He does not reject the broken, but He invites us all to His table. That's what the voice of Christ is saying, at the very least, through this story. Come to me. Come to the table. Come to the one who, in celebrating the Passover with his disciples on the night that he is betrayed, takes the elements of that Passover, the bread and the wine. And what does he do? He reveals their true meaning. He says, this bread, this bread is the bread of my body, which is broken for you. This cup, this wine, is the cup of the new covenant that is written in my blood, if you will. It is cut in my blood. It is poured out for the forgiveness of many. And what does he command us to do? Do this in remembrance, not of Egypt, but of all that that pointed to. Do this in remembrance of the greatest deliverance story ever, the deliverance of my people through the shedding of my blood. So that's what this table is all about. It's a table of forgiveness. That is to say, it, it's emblematic of how it is that we are forgiven, the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus. And it's a table for the forgiven, meaning you come to this table only after 
you've come to Jesus and recognized him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and given your life in addition to your sin to him. So I'm going to pray and read you a passage of Scripture and sort of explain how we do this at Rio if you've not done it with us before. But I want you to take some time to confess your sin in this process and then come joyfully. Amen.